Hello, loyal listeners. If you're wondering where the podcast has been for the past couple months, uh, basically I, Chris from Chris and Eric's Longbox Adventure, got a new job and mine and Eric's schedules wound up being basically the exact opposite. And then a lot of life stuff happened. And now it's two months later and we haven't recorded any new episode. Um, This one was recorded and initially intended to be released back in late November. So just ignore those references, I guess. Hope you enjoy. Uh, We will be back soon with episodes probably on a slightly slower release schedule but they are coming and we're gonna do it and we're excited about it so look forward to that enjoy this episode yeah Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week, it's one of my picks. Um, And as it is my second pick of November, as will always be in the following years of this podcast, my second pick in November, we're doing a Doctor Who comic. In this case, I went... I don't think this is as obscure as I could have possibly gone. I know of at least one thing that is more obscure than this, which might be next year's. So we're doing the TV 21 Daleks comics that ran in the strip from January 1965 to January 1967. You might say, wait, you're covering two years worth of comics. Here's the thing. In each issue of TV 21, it was exactly a one page addition to like the ongoing story. So it's not as much as it sounds, but I do think this is maybe the most we've covered in the podcast in terms of like plot lines and pages anyway. In terms of plot, definitely. It's like the total reading was probably about 110 pages, which is equivalent or less than some other stuff we've done. But these are those like larger page size British comics where even though each thing is a page, they largely compensate by having like 10 panels each. Yeah, and then, like, each page has to sort of contribute to the ongoing story in, like, a notable enough way that the kids are going to want to read it again in a month. It's that thing. TV 21 was, um, it did a lot of comics like this that tied into TV shows and stuff. And to be clear, by the way, Doctor Who does not show up in this comic. This is a comic about Daleks and just Daleks. And if you don't know what a Dalek is, it's... If you took a Nazi's brain and you nailed it to an octopus and then put that in a small tank, the general shape of a trash can, and gave it a plunger and a whisk that can shoot laser beams, it's about a Dalek. Well, there brings up one of my questions immediately is like, I've always like heard, you know, the term like Nazi or Nazism associated with Daleks, but then there's nothing actually specifically Nazi in these comics? Is it just that people make that association because of the fascism in Daleks, or in later continuity do we get actual Hitler shit? There is actual Hitler shit in Doctor Who, but weirdly the Daleks weren't there. But the Daleks are absolutely intended as metaphors for fascism, and very specifically because 1960s Britain, metaphor for the Nazis, which synonymous with fascism when it comes to metaphor and british science fiction especially that makes sense yeah 
it's to the point where in their second story, the Dalek invasion of Earth, the Daleks salute each other by jerking their plungers upwards in a little motion. Uh, it's audio medium, but just... You can imagine. You can imagine. Yeesh. <laughs> it's not subtle. They come up with a solution for humanity. They're like, oh, we've come up with our solution. Frankly, I appreciate art that's not subtle. Because some bitches are dumb and don't know how to read. And sometimes we don't need to be subtle. In the 80s story, Remembrance of the Daleks, there's a guy who fought... This story is from the 80s, but it was set in the 60s. And there was a character who thought that Britain was on the wrong side of the last war. And he works with the Daleks in that story. Gotcha. And okay. The, yeah, and like the Daleks are also explicitly drawn to parallels with in that story, um, British racism, like segregation, and um, some of the backstory that one of the main companions had at that time as well in the novel version, which is extremely good. So it's not even thinly veiled. Like none of this, I would even count as veiled. Then frequently, characters, if you like read the books, especially, will look at a Dalek hear what a Dalek is, and then be like, oh, this is like racism. This is like being a fascist. So yeah. Okay. The one difference with Daleks is I'd argue they don't have a choice in their beliefs and humans do. Like Daleks are genetically programmed to be like this. Most of the time, it's really not an option for them to not be like this. Yeah, I guess I'll wait till another story when we discuss the actual comics where some of that comes up a bit more before really getting too much into the question of like i guess choice and free will these dialects are also different than the ones in the show like vastly it's it but also very in line it's so basically what happened <laughs> is doctor who's second story was the first dalek story and they really took off and the way that it worked at the time is the guy who created them terry nation who wrote that first story and came up with the concept had ownership over the daleks so he was able to license Daleks out to other things. So this is a licensed Dalek comic, but it isn't something that had any involvement with any people who were involved in the TV show, except for the fact that David Whittaker wound up writing the thing, and David Whittaker was, became a little bit after this, a, a little during, actually. 67? Yeah, I think like around 66, 67, he became the script editor on the TV show. And wound up writing the two best like '60s Dalek stories, in my opinion. But um, none of it, none of it lines up. Don't worry about it. There's two movies based on Nation's first Dalek stories, starring Peter Cushing as a human man named Doctor Who, who invented the TARDIS and travels and just sort of does the two Dalek stories that already exist, but as broad, big budget movie comedies. So my impression then, I suppose, is with licensing differences and such that all the specific details won't necessarily yeah. line up in terms of being like non-contradictory in a wiki, but that the basic <laughs> gist will be the same. Not only does this comic in its origin for the Daleks contradict what we're told in the first Dalek story, the TV show would later do a story that is entirely about the creation of the Daleks that would completely contradict this comic on every level. In that story, uh, on the Daleks and Nazis parallel, the Khaleds, which are the humanoid beings that wound up evolving into Daleks, because of this story, all wear iron crosses on their military uniforms. Yeesh. 
70s Doctor Who was not subtle. It was actually less subtle than 60s Doctor Who, I'd argue, because they just said, oh, black uniforms. One of them's going to have an iron cross on it. How did we go from that to actually Space Amazon is good and Doctor Who? I don't know if that episode was meant to turn out that way, but it just sort of did. (laughs) I think they were maybe trying to do a Black Panther thing where it's like, here's an example of extremism we're going to use to teach you a real lesson, but then they just don't pull it off. I don't know. But yeah, you mentioned the name Terry Nation as the Daleks creator. And the thing that jumps out about these comics, one of the things... Is it like his name is in the title box for most of these comics, but it's just his name and no one else is credited? And if it weren't for like the first page of this collection telling you, no, here's who actually did all this, you would think that this man single handedly did all of these. Um, well, that's contracts for you, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so talking about credits, um, we are reading from the Vidalek's Ultimate Collector's Edition of a classic 1960 strip sort of restoration um, that Panini Publishing did. Um, they published Doc 2 Magazine, and they did a big restoration of these. In most cases, they found the original art and, like, rescanned it and made it look as good as they possibly could when they didn't have the original art to work from. Thank goodness, because I've seen pictures of what old editions of this looked like, and it was a bit of a mess. And like, we'll get into it with art discussion, but reading this, like the colors and the vibrancy and saturation is such a huge part of this that I feel like if you were reading just a faded decades old copy, it would not sell the same wonder of it. I do feel like my description of Nazi murder machines makes this sound like this isn't fun. This is pulpy fun comics. And it's also super bright and colorful. The thing about Daleks is they are an analog of Nazis, but they're also making fun of fascists in that they are pretty pathetic a lot of the time. Yeah, I don't have any of the knowledge and context of like having, you know, read or watched any of their other appearances. So I'm really just going off of this. But you've seen one episode of Dog 2 so far, but it was not a Dalek one. It was walking plastic mannequins at the mall. Autons. Autons. Autons and the nesting consciousness. They're from the 70s originally. They just quietly brought them back for the first episode. It was cool. But yeah, so writing this, we have Angus Allen, Alan Fennell, Terry Nation, and David Whitaker sort of noted. Angus Allen and Alan Fennell worked for TV21. David Whitaker is, as I said, he went on to script edit Doctor Who for a while during the second Doctor era, and he did write my two favorite 60s Dalek stories, Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks. You can watch an animated reconstruction of those, but unfortunately the original footage does no longer exist (laughs) because the BBC deleted it from their archives and just taped over it with God knows what, but not anything that matters these days. We also have three different artists, uh, Richard Jennings, Eric Eden, and Ron Turner. Um, it's just different ones illustrating the series at different times. I'd say the artists, to me, feel like the chief creators here. Um, but Whitaker, especially, um, a lot of the themes he explores in his like Dalek stories on television are clearly gestating and sort of throughout some of the latter half of this book. And 
it's pretty clear from what people can tell, and this is like everyone reading 20-year-old interviews, <laughs> Whitaker wrote the vast majority of this. The first story was apparently mostly like Alan Fennell working from Terry Nation's plots, but like it seems that very swiftly it became a David Whitaker thing. I will note too that like one compliment I can give this specific release of it is all of this information you're giving of historical context isn't just something you had to research. Like a lot of this information is in the book itself. And I appreciate when a new release like this will include that sort of context and specific discussion of not just like credits history, but also the art restoration and how it worked. It's like, this is exactly what I think you would want out of a new restored edition of decades old material where it sort of tells you how it got into your hands. The Doctor Who magazine team are fantastic, deserve a lot more credit for what they do for Doctor Who, and I wish it was easier to buy these things in America. The magazine, is there, there's still a Doctor Who magazine, right? There has been a Doctor Who magazine coming out at least monthly, sometimes weekly, ever since the 1970s, including when the show was off air. They still came out every month, at least. Shit. Um, well, the thing is, once the show went off air, there was still enough stuff going on, because that's when you had the novels, and there were still the comics that were part of the magazine that went on for that whole time. And, like, issues of a magazine have got to be cheaper to print than an episode of a show is to shoot, so... Yep, yeah. We will wind up doing comics from the era when Doctor Who was off air, and that's when Doctor Who was aimed exclusively at ad adults, and there's you can get pretty wild. It's great. I don't think the comics ever did, though, but some of the books, damn. Um, but this is definitely, I'd say, aimed very much at kids. So the series opens with... This is the first time that the origin of the Daleks is given, as I said, this origin that we get does contradict things that the Daleks say about their own past in the TV story <laughs> that we first meet them in, and then it also is completely contradicted of almost every single detail later on again in the TV show. But this is fun, I think this is probably- a, the TV show episode is better, but this is pretty good. So basically, on the planet Scaro, uh, there's the Falls, who are described as tall, handsome, and peaceful. We never actually see the Falls, ever, at all in this book, which, all, which does strike me as strange, because the Falls are like a big enemy of the Daleks in the show. They are all over the first episode that they appear in. The first Dalek story is the Daleks are all living in their city, and the Doctor and co have to convince the falls that they need to actually fight the daleks and not be pacifists because these awful beings just over there who are you know just the worst can't just be left alone because they're gonna come and kill the falls if the falls leave them alone so the falls need to go after them it's not subtle when you think about people like neville chamberlain and the way british politics would have been in the 40s through 60s but in this case the daleks are a bunch of blue-skinned humanoids, and while their leader is apparently a pacifist, a, a, like a, a counselor who underneath him is having them create war machines and massive neutron bombs so that they can go and kill all the files with them, uh, and then he kills the pacifist leader and takes over the society 
they reveal what the war machine they're building looks like, which is a Dalek, and then a meteorite storm falls and hits the store of neutron bombs, which all explode. And just looks like an A-bomb. It's it's an A-bomb. It's a nuclear war thing. Absolutely. Daleks also have a thing with nuclear radiation. That, by the way, was the first page. That was the first page. Um, the betrayal and like generational philosophical divide is going to be a running theme here because we are going to multiple times get the wiser, more peaceful, older Dalek, and then the chomping at the bit to be a war criminal underneath them is going to repeatedly stab them in the back. Yeah, because there's, there's that in the, the Solaris or Solanus story. There's, oh yeah, when the when the Daleks show up who are like the ones who are in stasis or whatever later. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of just betrayal as assholes want to blow shit up. But real quick, what's the artist name for these first stories? Which artist is this? So this is, right now it's Richard Jennings. Yeah, his work, we have three different artists across the book. I like all of them. I think this one, uh, Jennings, I think his work is perhaps kind of the darkest and has like the most ink and shadow to it of the three, but he still also has like really bright background colors. So it's, you know, it's like, it's not muddy. It's not like dark in a bad way. And there still is like some bright popping to the aesthetic, but I think it is less like, I suppose, arresting and poppy, you know, like there's just sort of a bit more balance to it in tones in comparison to like the last third of the book or so is just like almost entirely really bright in hue. Yeah. And one other interesting thing here is you can tell how few reference photos some of these artists had of Daleks going into the book. For example, in the initial stories that Jennings draws, the Daleks' proportions are just way off the show, and stuff like the angles that the little lights on their head that light up when they speak are sat in, and stuff like that will just change, and, and just, like, they're consistent within the comic, but you can tell at which point he got proper pictures of the damn things, and at which point he was working off of maybe what he remembered watching the show on a Saturday night six months earlier. That makes sense. Yeah, as the non-Hoovian, I didn't really pick up on that personally, but that is an interesting note. Like, with as old as you mentioned these being, I feel like a franchise in its relative infancy like this has the possibility for that much more than it ever would today i suppose do you agree like it's i imagine that anyone creating a doctor who comic today the daleks would not be as variable you say that but we are eventually going to do the time lord victorious tie-in story that titan comics did which features daleks that are very clearly 3d models that for some reason the artist had to scrounge up which do not line up with either the design in the TV show at the time or the Time Lord Victoria's specific designs that had been made for those stories that I know they made 3D models of because it's also an animated series that ties into it. Well, never mind. I was wrong. That said, I do know... So there's some specific details. For example, there's... For the first couple issues, pages, 
however you want to phrase that same thing um there is a circle on the front of like the daleks midsection behind some of the bands that go past them that's because when they took the reference photos they gave this artist were while like they weren't in use on set and they used different colored markers to indicate which dalek was in each scene because the models looked pretty much identical but like to keep straight for all the blocking and stuff before they were actually shooting and during rehearsals they had these markers on them and so because the photos they took just had the markers on them they just wound up in the comic see that's a fun detail i guess just for my own confirming the daleks on the show specifically like contemporary to this they were like closer to puppetry than suits, right? Like people weren't piloting these. Like there wasn't a person like crouching in the Dalek, right? No, there is. Oh, it's, okay. It's, it basically they were built around a chair, and your okay. legs stick out the bottom, and they're on caster wheels, and you just sort of trundle around. And then you've got there's a little stick for the plunger, and there's a little stick for the gun stick. And I I'm not 100 percent sure on the mechanism for the head, but you turn the head. And like lift the eye up with like the I think it was a stick that hung down that was hooked up to the eye so you could adjust its angle. And then if you look at a Dalek, they've got this. It's it's a, a I don't know how to describe it. I call it it's the neck section like underneath the dome head. There's three rings with some sticks between them held up over what in the comic just sort of looks like a black sort of space. Well, in the show that was a felt that the uh, they would look out. That sounds uncomfortable. Oh, it famously is extremely uncomfortable. And like, if you're just like shut up in that thing while you're filming, you have to get like hot and sweaty yep. on your uncomfortable chair yep. that you scooch around. Yep. I've seen one of these things opened up in person because I was lucky enough to be uh, on the set at the time when they weren't filming back in 2017. Yeah, 2017. And they had one of them sitting out so you could see the little seat inside. And it looked incredibly uncomfortable. Damn. Nowadays, on all of them, the heads are done by remote control. But there's still someone in there sitting inside it, moving the little plunger and the little gun stick and doing all the trundling along the ground. There's been one or two remote control ones that they've made, but... If you go and watch Doctor Who right now, there's still someone in there. How much do you want to do that? Oh, not at all. I think I'm too big for it, to be honest. Yeah, because like, how tall are these bitches? Most of them are like, maybe five feet. Depends on the design. Okay. Sometimes shorter. They're pretty short. Like, the fun thing about Daleks is they're little. So whenever the Doctor's pissed at them, usually, anyway, there's a couple of Doctors who've wound up being shorter than Daleks. But usually, they get down into their faces. Uh, but where were we? Oh, yeah, so the bombs have gone off. And so two years later, the Dalek scientist who designed the new war machine, Yarveling, and the crazy asshole who took over da Dalek society, Zolfian, love these names, pop out of a little hatchway. I guess these guys and just these guys knew where this bomb shelter was. Um, so they wander around the ruined city when... After a while, they've got radiation sickness and they're going to die. And then a Dalek shows up and it is the full, like, he's in the war machine. And it explains that the neutron radiation mutated 
all of the other Daleks that survived the bombs, so that now they can only survive by, like, piloting the war machines that Yavling made. So I guess just to make sure I have this clear, the bombs mutated the, like, humanoid aliens, the Dalek race. Yep. And they now, like, inhabit and pilot, you know, the swivelly trash cans. Yep. But... There's a squishy thing inside. Okay, yeah, like, they are, like, a separate thing from the metal, like, the metal itself is not alive. Correct. Daleks are, I guess, technically cyborgs because they're plugged into the machines, usually. But also, sometimes in the TV show, a Dalek will open up and a human's able to sit in there and pilot the thing, which I think is hilarious and stupid, but they do that sometimes. And, like, the mutated forms, aren't they, like, octopi? Depends, usually. It's kind of standardized since we got in 2005 the story Dalek. That name is just, it's its a good name for the episode, but also it's really difficult to talk about when you're in this comic. Um, in that episode, we get a, the first clear look at a Dalek mutant that hasn't like just been recently blown up. Like in the classic show, you would see like a claw underneath a cloak. Or, like, just sort of a bunch of green shit in the middle of a half-exploded Dalek. Um, And ever since that episode, they have pretty much looked the same. And the tentacles have stuck. But they did recently in 2018? 2018? 2019? 2019, because it was a New Year's special. So it was 2019. They did a new design. And that design now seems to have stuck again. But it's still, like, octopusy. That's how I visualized them because I got introduced to Daleks in 2005. But like, yeah, it doesn't, we don't see it very often. Okay. Now that I've derailed us for half an hour, just making sure that I fully understand what a Dalek is after reading a hundred pages of Dalek (laughs) comics. Well, this is something that like school children in Britain would have just known. Daleks were huge. It was called Dalek mania because it was like Beatle mania, but it was for Daleks. And it was just this bit in the 60s, I'd say 63, when the Daleks first appeared, through to around when this comic ended, 67 or so. People were just fucking nuts for them. They made two theatrical movies about Daleks starring Peter Cushing. And the Dalek mania continues into the present day with at Dalek Chris on various sites. Oh, I'm fully Dalek manic. Uh, Daleks are maybe my favorite fictional species. Uh, to be clear, I do not stand Daleks. They are awful. But I think they're awful in really funny ways sometimes. And also they're really good fucking villains. Because they are very, very, very smart, but also extremely stupid. Uh, so to quickly finish out our um, three-page origin story for the Daleks. Fucking hell. There's a lot of plot crammed into these things. Before Yavling and Zolfian die of radiation sickness, the Daleks have them set up a giant war factory to build more machines so the Daleks can pilot them. Because Daleks can't build shit themselves. This is kind of a recurring thing with Daleks in that, like, part of the... I guess it's the joke of them, is they are utterly convinced of their own superiority over everyone else, but also they are a trash can with a plunger sticking out of it that can't pick up a brick. They can kill the brick, but they can't pick it up. Yeah, like, I guess, what is their full range of, like, motion and abilities? Like, because they all have, like, 
lasers, right? Is that about it? They have the lasers and they have the plunger. The plunger is, it's not really a plunger, it just looks one like one. Because, I mean, they used plungers. But, like, we've seen in some more modern Who that they're, like, sci-fi plungers that can push buttons and stuff when you put them over a keypad and things like that. And they can do a lot of high technology things, like the casings are incredibly advanced, they have force fields, Daleks are really smart, they're good at maths, they're good at schemes, they're not good at, like, making things usually, because their range of mobility is about what you would expect when it's an upside-down trash can with someone in an essentially an office chair wheeling around underneath it. This includes, like, needing flat surfaces for convenient movement. Okay. Um, especially since this is back in the days when Daleks couldn't just sort of fly. They can fly now, in the 60s. In their first story, they couldn't leave their city, because each Dalek was powered by static electricity, like, powered through the floor, like literal fucking bumper cars. Why would we have ever changed that? Why can't they stay bumper co- Like, because, obviously. Because they needed to do the story where they invaded Earth. Because the second story was, okay, we need to have our, like, sci-fi Nazis running around in London. Because that's scary. Yeah, like, I get it narratively, but I just appreciate the idea of them being bumper cars. Oh, it's great. It, it's, it's delightful. But, um, I mean, they kind of still are bumper cars. They're just slightly more dangerous. They're let loose off of the track. Yeah. Uh, and finally, the first mutant that we saw, the first Dalek, uh, is like, I'm going to be Emperor, make me a special casing from Flydraw Gold, Quartz, and Arkelis Flower Sap. And we have, so I described the Daleks as sort of an upside-down trash can. The Dalek Emperor is an upside-down trash can with a very large beach ball on the top. And he's, like, golden. And he's bright gold, and he's shorter than the rest of them, which is delightful. I'm like, he has tried to make himself big and impressive, but has accidentally wound up being shorter than everyone else. And he's got, they all have, like, little lights on their heads that flash when they speak, which kind of irrelevant in a comic, but you need that in the show because there's no, like, mouth or anything. He's got a bunch of those, so when his lights flash when he speaks, there's a lot of lights, it's impressive. Um, I love the Dalek Emperor. This is the first time a Dalek Emperor appeared. There wound up being one on the show in the 60s in The Evil of the Daleks. He looked more like a big, really tall, thin, upside-down trash can. And he couldn't go anywhere. He was, like, wide into the wall. So very different from this guy. But still cool. He got a big voice, which sadly we don't get to hear this one's voice. Oh yeah, uh, if you're wondering, Daleks sound like this. You will move ahead of us and follow my directions. We are the masters of the Earth. Extermination! Extermination! Um, so I think we should move forward. There's, there's a fun question mark story about some slavers arriving on Scaro and the Daleks essentially accidentally freeing the slaves in an attempt to enslave them themselves. It's all just... Like, there's the Daleks, and then the slavers who came to the planet, who obviously are also morally bankrupt themselves. And it's like, the two, like, sides of evil bumbling around, just vying for 
power and only caring about themselves while the slaves are attempting to like rebel and protect themselves from both the current slavers and the would-be slavers of the Daleks. Because uh, Daleks need people with like arms and legs to do things because uh, they don't have those. <laughs> I just love the constant Dalek need. Like, we need some slaves. We can't build things ourselves. Then there is another fun story about this is a weird one. Daleks don't have names. Generally speaking, there's a couple exceptions. Um, there's, But normally when there's an exception, it's like, this Dalek has a name. That's weird. There's an explanation for this. This comic just has a Dalek named Zeg. Well, the thing too is like, there's a later story that gets more into this, but my sense is that Daleks are very much against independent thought. And the individuation just is not something that they prioritize and maybe like actively discourage. So the idea of a name is like antithetical to the point. You will conform. Yeah, they're, they're all about everyone wearing the same uniform and marching in the same direction, except for, you know, the guy in charge. Sounds like a metaphor. Yeah. Um, but basically, Zeg, due to like an accident, gets a really difficult to destroy case. And he's like... I should be the emperor. I love a Dalek who's just like decides that he wants to be in charge of the Daleks. It's always sort of like, why? Why? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I like a Dalek who just betrays the Daleks, but solely because he wants to be more Dalek than the Daleks who are currently in charge. And the Dalek emperor manages to defeat him in a duel by like outsmarting him, which is really the main advantage the Dalek emperor has over anyone else in these is he's the only one who's able to stop and think. Daleks, generally speaking, are just like faster, faster, kill, kill. Um, and then occasionally you get a good proper schemey Dalek, and the Emperor is definitely that. There's another fun story. This is all with art by Jennings. I feel like we should move further forwards just so we can talk about some of the other artists. But there's a really fun story where they fight a planet where all of the, like, basically it's the planet from Avatar where all the plant life is alive and connected in a massive hive mind. Except this hive mind can yell at you and also, like, make spores of flowers grow out of Daleks. Daleks and flowers is a weird, like, thing that recurs in this comic as well. Well, like, the visual's just fun every time, because just, like, I don't know, it's just inherently cool to look at, like, the contrast between the hard metal and then, you know, like, the soft petals and flowers and just the obvious distinction between technology and nature and... In this case, nature blowing Nazis up from the inside out. Yeah, it's the, the, I really like this story. This is one's a lot of fun. There's some Dalek scheming stories where they try to trick a planet into getting control of it. And, you know, in, in the end, this race of people who look like humans, but are, I, I don't think are humans, unclear, manage to sort of drive them away. Uh, the Daleks don't succeed a lot the weird thing about this is it since the daleks are the main characters they can't lose in a way that kills the daleks but also because this is a kids comic they can't get to genocide everyone they come across or at least like the framing has to be done in a specific way whether it's abstracted or sort of distanced like there are points where they're just like if we can't have this planet blow it up you know, like they established the principle of if we don't win, blow it up, you know, which is destruction. But that's like less immediately realistic and disturbing feeling than, you know, 
other things that you could do with a Nazi allegory, you know, like we don't get like camps in these comics, you know? Yeah, I think the closest we get is the slaver story. And the thing about that is all those slaves wind up getting out and being free. Yeah. So later on, uh, we're skipping forward a fair bit so we can talk about the work here uh, done by Eric Eden. Um, so Eden only wound up doing about six six strips. Yeah, I think six strips, 61 to 67 on the page count, but that's not quite. So Eden definitely had good photo references for this. Specifically, he had a lot of pictures from the Cushing movies because these are just the Daleks from the Peter Cushing movies in terms of their design. So like before this, a lot of the stuff had been done by Jennings um, as well as we had, I think, two pages by Ron Turner. We'll talk about Ron Turner later because most of his work is after Eden leaves, um, which like is mostly referencing the show visually. But then all of a sudden the black Dalek in this is black and gold with the hemispheres. Some of them are silver and some of them are gold, which is the one from the Peter Cushing movie. They sadly are not flying their saucer from the second Cushing movie, which is a shame, but like the colors of all the Daleks are the movie color schemes. Um, the ones that have a little claw arm instead of a plunger arm have specifically the claw from the movie. So if you're wondering why they all suddenly look really consistent for a couple pages, it's because this guy was, I think, given a lot of stills from the film and maybe traced some of this. As someone who's modeled a lot of Daleks in 3D, this is the most like accurate and consistent the Daleks' like actual portrayal as a physical object in this space gets. The work in his portion feels especially sleek, I suppose. Like there's a lot of rockets launching and the way that just like all the machinery is done. It's like he has quite clean line work, generally like very thin line weights. There's still, you know, some shadows but it's a bit toned down from the first artist. It's already starting to brighten up a little bit. It's like the transition from artist to artist is like it gets a bit more pop arty looking with each step. And this is sort of like a middle period. And I like his skies of space and just like these lovely blues. And yeah, it's bold. It all is very clean looking. Looks nice. I like these alien people that the Daleks are attacking in this one. The like, people of the planet, P-H-R-Y-N-E, I'm going to say Frine? Prine? Wait, it's spelled differently on the next page. <laughs> they changed the spelling. It's P-Y-R-Y-N-E. So that's Pyrine? Pyrine? No Pyrine? idea. Pyrine. Pyrine. Is Frine or Pyrine better? I like Pyrine. Sure. That feels even weirder. They have... Very human faces, except for the fact that, like, they've got a weird bulge in the middle of their face, and when they have really big ears, built, they look like Ferengi from Star Trek, kind of. It's as if they have, like, protrusions for cheekbones that are so extreme and elevated above the rest of the face that it looks like the top half of their face is a mask that they're wearing above the bottom half of the face, like an entirely separate layer of skin. Just like a whole extra face. Yes. Yeah, that's about right. 
But then after like that brief period, we head into what I think is where the strip really hits its stride, which is when Ron Turner starts doing the art. This is all definitely painted, and it's painted in such a way that like a lot of the time that aren't really there isn't really like what I would call line work because like this isn't inked. Like some of the stuff that Jennings did, clearly the colors were painted in, but it still looks like someone, you know, did some pencils and then some inks. This feels like someone did some pencils and then some paints. Yeah, there's comparatively less like strict black inking here. The painting's just really lovely. Um, The composition gets really interesting as well. Yeah, one thing we haven't really talked a lot about the composition earlier other than just that there are generally a ton of panels on a page. At some points in the book, the other artists, I wouldn't really like the actual panel layouts because sometimes the shapes would just be sort of jagged and the way that like panels would interact on a page just wouldn't really feel as polished and conducive to reading as I would hope. It's like, you know, like I could always figure out you know, okay, this will be next, this will be next. Like, it didn't make it illegible, but it also just kind of looked structurally a bit haphazard, whereas these layouts, you know, they're still not just a typical grid, but the way that images, like, angle into each other and such feels like... It leads the eye along, I think, a bit better than the other artist's work did. And when it is sort of chaotic, it's chaotic in a way that works and just has energy to it. Yeah, and then also sometimes you get very creative with the layouts. Like the third page that Turner did, um, the Daleks are watching a planet that's like just sort of flying through space, a rogue planet that isn't like orbiting any sun just keeping an eye on it in case it starts coming towards Scaro. And the last shot of the page is the reflection of the planet in the eye of the Emperor Dalek. And so the eye of the Emperor Dalek is essentially serving as the panel border for this image of the planet flying through. Yeah, it's very nice. He would just like get creative sometimes in some really cool ways. Um, he also... so. We just talked about the way the Daleks are frequently off-model. Ron Turner intentionally made the Daleks off-model from the show. Ron Turner looked at the work that Shawcraft Models did, looked at the work that Raymond Cusick did, and said, here's the thing, that's great, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make something cooler. Um so it's it's a lot of little things that if you're obsessed with Daleks like me, you notice, but like it is a very intentional redesign. He gives a lot more of them claws, and it's not the specific claw from the movie. It's like a different shape of claw. The The design for the gun slowly evolves. Um, he does change it up. There's literally times when the Emperor Dalek will have like a completely he- different head design just between two pages, because Ron Turner's like, I guess, refought it in the... You know, I don't... These must have been coming out weekly for TV21, because... There's way too many pages here for it to have been, like, once a month. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. no way it could have been monthly, at least not for the whole time. Yeah, so it was it was a, a weekly series. And he's just sort of refought this design since last week, and it's changed. And it's also, I think, some of the more fun stories happen. So, like, the story about the rogue planet 
uh, the Daleks essentially deflect it away from Scaro and intentionally aim it at their their arch enemies, the Mechanoids, which, I mean, you don't know this, but the Mechanoids are from one episode of Doctor Who. And by one episode, I mean one-sixth of one story featured the Mechanoids. And the intention was that the Mechanoids were going to be a big thing, and then they just sort of weren't. But they show up in this because they thought they were going to be a big deal thing like the Daleks were. And also in that episode of the show, they were like just robots, and here they are a, a, a big empire that's like the arch enemy empire of the Daleks. And in that in the show, they were just like dumb robots whose programming had gone wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of foes. There's a lot of nemesises, specifically like other alien races and such that they regard as their foes. Because the Daleks don't have allies, literally any time they encounter another form of life, they immediately try to kill it. Like, to the point where they often don't even really try to figure out what it is. If it's a new thing, it, they're literally just like, invasive android, kill it. Yeah, the, the 2K android who shows up and is like, sent on a mission by a galactic council to try and get the mechanoids and the daleks from like not tearing the galaxy apart in their ongoing war against each other um i think we only see the mechanoids for like a panel but uh, if you're wondering what a mechanoid looks like imagine just sort of a ball with a bunch of triangles on it and some little little arms that come out and some lights on the top but even more just like embarrassingly useless than daleks well it's like if you took the top swivel circle to the Dalek but got rid of the bottom half that they're moving around on. <laughs> they're just a bunch of circles. Um, I love the Mechanoids because they are so stupid and also so inconsistent in their portrayal. But they show up very rarely, which is sad. They should come back. We have a new sh- we have a, a new old show- showrunner coming in. Russell T. Davies, bring back the Mechanoids for Doctor Who's 60th anniversary in 2023. Also, in good news, uh, I guess since we last recorded, Jodie Whittaker's last episode was actually fun, and I enjoyed it. That's good. I don't know if I'd say it was good, but it was a good time, and not in a way in which I was laughing at it. That was nice. We have the Daleks disturb the monsters in the Lake of Mutations, because Scaro has a lot of life in this comic. Like, there's jungles and stuff, and giant two-headed monsters living in their lake. This is very weird if you've seen the show where they normally will, like, shoot exterior scenes of Scaro in, like, a mine or a desert where everything is just, like, rocks. But it's very fun for the comic to have just several issues of giant monsters and Daleks just sort of going, my laser's not working! Just, like, lots of maybe reptilian, like, sea monsters, multiple heads, just... They were mutated by the neutron radiation, but instead of becoming, like, hateful little squid monsters, they turned into just kaiju. Yeah. Doctor Who needs more kaiju. Bring bring in a kaiju for Doctor Who's 60th anniversary, 2023. Just kidding, we're getting Beep the Meep, probably. Beep Meep. Uh, meep Beep. I, I really hope so. We, we are, if we, if we are, that's definitely what our Doctor Who story next year, the, the minimum one we're doing in November is gonna be meep beep but if we're not getting beep the meep in november next year i don't know um so then we come to i think it's both of our favorite story which is the one 
where there is the Dalek who decides that he likes flowers. I say he. Daleks alternate between it or he for pronouns. Inconsistent. Sounds about like what I would expect from a not immediately humanoid looking sci-fi race. It, and if it's a gender, he. Yeah, it's, I guess most Daleks, when you point at them, you're just like, that Dalek over there, it's over there. And then when a Dalek has enough of an individual personality, it winds up just sort of becoming a he. You even get it in the same story where, like, the Doctor will be talking about the Daleks and say it, and then be talking about that Dalek with a, like, special rank and say he. (laughs) Daleks don't have gender, really, I would say, at all. Oh, Because that's an individual thing. That reminds me of a question I thought of earlier and hadn't asked you yet. How do Daleks reproduce? Do they? Cloning. Okay. They, they, they make, like, vats. They have vats that they then have little scoops. There's, there's Daleks in one story who have a little scoop attachment instead of their plunger, and they scoop out the little ball of hatred and stick it in a new Dalek. Like they pull out, like, the like creature and put yeah. it in, like, a new casing? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, no, uh, the, the usually, usually it's like, this is our big sort of tank filled with the Daleks that we've made. Like, whenever we see it, it's always a tank with dark, murky liquid in it, and we can't quite see it, but it's gross. Okay. And it's normally screaming. Okay. Yeah, in this story, it specifically just starts out with, like, the Emperor giving orders to a crowd, and the drama starts not when someone refuses to obey, but literally just a Dalek asks, why? And the emperor is shook. He is disturbed. He's like, who questioned me? And no one pipes up. And so it just becomes a question of which of this squadron of Daleks is having individual thoughts. And we like visit his little Dalek apartments and he has flowers. And the other Daleks are just like, this is weird. <laughs> Humans do this. We don't do this. Well, no, specifically humanoids. So one thing about these comics is they have not actually met the human race yet. The end of the comic is the Daleks finding out about the human race. Yeah. Which was apparently at the time maybe intended to lead into the second Peter Cushing movie where they have invaded Earth. It feels like an appropriate stopping point, even if it would be like partially. I suppose I don't know like how much notice they had of the strip getting canceled so i wonder to what degree it was like coincidental but it feels like the perfect place to stop unfortunately i think almost everyone we could ask who was like there is like dead of old age yeah these are again these are very very old 65 to 67 but yeah so this dalek decides so that they're laying down like a new road through the forest to get to the lake of mutations Um, And so they're burning all the vegetation on the way. And this one Dalek defends a flower from being destroyed by like destroying the Dalek machine that was on its way and presumably killing at least a couple of Daleks in order to protect this flower. And the Dalek Emperor goes out there and just like CSI is like, oh, well, clearly defending this flower. And uh, we get like the flower Dalek begins trying to get other Daleks to its own side and giving its own orders to include the decree. Protect beauty. Flowers are beautiful. And that's a Dalek order. They, uh, the Daleks start wearing flowers and the Emperor and he's like, at this point, there's just sort of two Daleks who are always next to the Emperor who is advisors. There's a red one and a black one. 
And then all the other Daleks are like a gray or silver color. And they're just like, what the fuck is this? Why are you wearing flowers? Well, between the reefs around them and their red lights on their heads, they look like Christmas tree trash cans. Like, it looks like you just took a trash can and put some tinsel around it. I love it. I love it. And and the way that the, like, flowers are sort of drawn onto them. So the Daleks, when Turner draws them, tend to be quite high contrast. Like, it's either black or it's a bright color. And then the flowers are always the bright colors. And they normally look like they were sort of daubed on after, like, there's no shadow usually on the flowers, at least no significant shadow. And the contrast of, like, the wave of two different elements is sort of portrayed looks really cool to me. Yeah, and just, like, from a depth perspective, it looks really good, too. Uh, Turner's work is definitely the most interesting. I think, like, the layouts are the most considered and the most inventive. As the huge nerd who is, I've modeled in 3D Ron Turner Daleks, and I am currently working on an animation that's explicitly aping his style, but trying to transfer that into motion, which is tricky. And it's it's just really great. But also sometimes designs will just change between pages. For example, on one page, we have the Dalek Emperor being like, so a bunch of Daleks in front of the Emperor exterminate another Dalek because he crushed a flower and they're all protecting beauty now. That's the Daleks thing. They really, really like flowers. Beauty is strength. The Daleks are strength. So then you turn the page and all of the Daleks have gone from having... Um, they they up until now in the whole comic they've had two rings around the side of their midsection sort of where the plunger and whisk come out and now they have a bunch of slats over there because at this point in the show i guess the stories where they've added the slats have come out and it's just sort of happened but no time has passed in the comic because it's like well we just sort of came over here right after that conversation and everyone's design has changed i love this I know it sounds like it should be a thing that I don't like, but I really like... These comics aren't serious enough for me to mind it. Well, like, I think there's something for, like, art that's more beholden to just doing what it wants to do visually and making changes if it thinks they're for the betterment than just having to feel constrained to a specific blueprint, I suppose. You know, like, it's very much just, like... I'm having fun. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Yeah, well, plus, you know, getting paid to do that's great. So get paid, Ron Turner. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, so to finish off the story, the the Emperor's like, it's, I said, basically the Emperor's like, well, this Dalek's brain is clearly diseased. So we just need to kind of wait around a minute and I'll be able to take care of this. So he shows up and is just like, oh, look, all these flowers you're wearing. Yeah, they're dead because strength of beauty doesn't last kill this Dalek, and all the Daleks are like, yeah, that reasoning makes sense, and the last panel of this story is just the Daleks just firing massive jets of flame at this one insane Dalek that decided he really liked flowers. So evil of the Daleks, which uh, David Whitaker, who, this is very clearly David Whitaker who's writing this, just the stuff that he's interested in when it comes to Daleks, that story is about the Emperor of the Daleks trying to figure out why they keep losing to humans and deciding that it's probably what he calls the human factor, which is the instinct to work together and, like, capacity for 
emotions and learning and growth, which are things that Daleks just don't have. And then um, some Daleks get given the human factor and turn it into like childlike, playful characters and the doctor uses it to set up a massive civil war because the daleks start questioning orders because some of them have been given the human factor and it's at the time that was meant to be like the last dalek story in the show and it was portrayed as like the end of their civilization is just some of them started questioning orders and you can see that whitaker was clearly like thinking about these ideas writing these comics which is really cool because that story is like a big deal in the show and then finding out that, oh, well, he, he clearly, like, thought about these ideas and concepts. Well, 67, I think, is when Evil of the Daleks came out. If not, it was 68. I really should have looked this up before going in, because I knew I was going to talk about Whitaker a bunch. Anyway, it's it's cool seeing these themes and ideas sort of played out in these different ways, and because it's a comic with, like, just the wild visual, Daleks and flowers look so cool. It's It all just looks really good, like, just to reiterate... You know, the first two artists are good, but the period, the like back half of the book by the final artist is just this is what you showed me photos of months ago. And I was like, I want to read that as the non who had over here. We just we had to wait until the anniversary. It's 59 as of, you know, honestly, it may be a week ago, but it's just my second story. Every my second pick every November is going to be a Doctor Who comic of some kind for obvious reasons. Next year, I'll probably do two picks in November that are Doctor Who related because it's the actual 60th. Yeah. We're going to have three specials coming out throughout that month. I'm excited. And then probably a Christmas special as well. Are there any Dalek Christmas specials? There's three Dalek New Year's specials. Huh. And there have been some Christmas specials that have had a Dalek in them, but I would not call them Dalek stories. Okay. But yeah... Does the Doctor ever meet or be revealed to be Santa Claus? He's met Santa. Okay. There is a whole Santa episode, and it's actually one of the best Christmas specials. It's really fucking good. And the guy who played Santa in that story's name is Nick Frost. Oh. Like, the actor's real name. Okay. Yeah, so then there's just there's some more stories. It's mostly a lot of, like, people trying to keep away from the Daleks so the Daleks don't find about about Earth for, like, the last story you can tell that they were sort of winding down because I, I do think they, they had some warning this trip was going to end. I mean, they could have been told like two weeks before it was going to end that it was going to end. And that's still enough time to do one of these. If you're producing a page a week and then each story is like maybe six pages at longest. But I think we get some really stunning art right towards the end. There's some panels where Turner is like silhouetting the Daleks against like the sky outside the ship that they're looking out of and like there's a the sort of soft gradient blues are just the basis of everything inside that one panel i really love that panel with like the blues and then contrasted against the gold of the emperor like that's really lovely yeah the emperor's always the bright gold and um oh yeah each each strip has a little header that says the name of the strip and for most of the ron turner era it is the Daleks in like this jagged font against a red background with sort of a lightning kind of jagged line dividing it from a blue panel, which then has a bunch of Daleks that are like they're silver Daleks that are like lit in like a bright yellow orange color to contrast against it. 
And it's a really fun little header. And like, it looks like one of them is specifically like shooting a laser with the text bubble in it. Yeah, but that's the ice stock. It's really weird. But I kind of like how weird that is. Yeah. (laughs) I think this might be the most arresting and striking of any coloration in any comic we've talked about thus far. Like, these colors just pop. It looks really good. Yeah, Ron Turner just did such spectacular work in this. And of course, we wind up getting children running around with Daleks and like getting near misses because they've like captured a ship of humans and they're running around. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of running around trying to avoid Daleks in these stories. Yeah, getting kidnapped, escaping, trying to get back to the rest of your crew as they're getting kidnapped. It's it's how many pages do we have left again? Oh wait, we need another one. They I guess they gotta get kidnapped and then escape again by the end of the page. And then at the very end, the Daleks are gonna find a s- scrap of paper that's been left behind, basically giving directions on how to get back to Earth. And they're just like, okay, time to get to the TV show. We have humans to invade. Yeah, yeah. My 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 head canon that explains how like different the lore for these Daleks is, is these are the Daleks from the universe where the movies happened. And so the Doctor is just like a human scientist whose name is literally Doctor Who. And that would explain most things. It still doesn't actually, to most the first Dalek story and the second Dalek story feel massively contradictory in that in the first Dalek story, at the end, all the Daleks die and they also like couldn't leave their city. And then in the second story, it's like, oh yeah, the Daleks have conquered Earth in the future. And they have run everything for seven years now on the planet Earth. It's very strange. But also, like, the thing about Doctor Who specifically, when, like, you think about franchises, is no one thought they would ever, like, watch a Doctor Who story twice back in the day. There was no expectation that people would actually, like, sell these on DVD or animate the ones that they've taped over with something else so that there's still some kind of visual component left for people to watch or like remaster all of the old Dalek comics that they just sort of made week by week to sell in a children's magazine and just like lovingly restore them all and print them in a new book and then you know it just wasn't a thing that they thought about back then the way that like now you kind of imagine imagine if Marvel the, the like the MCU just didn't really expect you to have seen the first Avengers movie when they made Endgame or like if they did they're like well you saw it but also that movie came out six years ago and there's no way you would have seen it at all since then that is early 60s Doctor Who and the way it's written and the way that like so consistency doesn't actually matter and I really like just how wild that makes everything, because sometimes you're just like, wait, hang on, that doesn't make sense. But it's fine. You don't actually need to explain it because it's just, well, they weren't really expecting you to remember that detail. It's not meant to be a perfectly strict lore. Or even like a halfway. I mean, the show even now contradicts itself and it's fine. Just worry about the story you're watching as you're watching it or reading or whatever. The Doctors met Mary Shelley on the night she came up with the idea for Frankenstein three times. Sounds about right. And each time they encountered a different monster that helped inspire her to create Frankenstein. And two different times, it two of the times it was a Cyberman, but they were different Cybermen and it was different Doctors doing it. 
and inspired in different ways. And also the Doctor traveled with Mary Shelley in the TARDIS for a while. Mary Shelley was a Doctor Who companion. All right. Are there a lot of other real-world people who are companions? Uh, the Doctor has an unfortunate friendship with Winston Churchill. Sounds about right. What about Margaret Thatcher? Does she ever get on the telly? Oh, oh, uh, no, the Doctor really hates Margaret Thatcher. Okay, good. Uh, the Doctor canonically um, regularly topples uh, dictators and other planets who look surprisingly a lot like Margaret Thatcher. There we go. The, um, the, the guy who script edited the show before it cancelled got the job after going into the producer and saying that he wanted to use the show to topple the government. And was told that was probably a bit ambitious, but that he could have a go at it. There we go. Um, was there anything else you really wanted to talk about? I mean, the plot kind of doesn't matter. These You should read them, I think. Especially if you're like interested in old comics or like Doctor Who. If you're a Dalek head like me, these are unmissable. Yeah, I imagine if you're a Doctor Who fan, you'll like them. And like, even if you just like looking at sort of vintage sci-fi visuals, like if you're just sort of curious to look back on like classic science fiction aesthetics and aliens and planets and shit, I think it's at least like worth looking up some of the art. Oh, there's some like, especially with Ron Turner, there's a lot of really cool like ship designs. Like, the Daleks suddenly have really cool-looking spaceships. There's, like, how many, like, fins and little sticky-out, like, gun things can we give them? Can this spaceship have tentacle arms with flamethrowers on them? Yes. Yes, it can. So we'll do that. It's weird how their ships are so much more functional than they are. I'm like, why doesn't the Dalek have a tentacle arm? (laughs) If they can make tentacles, that's more mobile than the stick with the plunger on the end of it. But, yeah. People should read these. Um, I think this, I, I I had to get this used because it was just, it, it was printed like it was a magazine. So it, it, at a certain point just wasn't on shelves and I hadn't found it because sometimes this stuff is hard to find over here. They do put it, Barnes and Noble is the place I've had the best luck for finding Doctor Who magazine, but they don't, you know, it's kind of luck of the draw. But I think this is available digitally. So look that up. But also... While the restored version, I think, is pretty is pretty clamped down on, there are unrestored versions all over the internet. If you do, like, even a slight amount of Google searching, you'll find scans of the previous releases of these that aren't quite as nice looking because they haven't, like, scanned the original artwork. It's more just scans of, like, surviving copies of the comics. But um, I'd still recommend it. I, I think that they're really well worth looking at. And... If you want to see what Ron Turner's stuff looks like in motion, I will eventually have some stuff on my YouTube channel with that. It's just slow work because I have to model all of these spaceships and then figure out some of the stylistic stuff I still haven't quite finished figuring out. But my Daleks look really nice and look a lot like his drawings, so I'm pleased with that. But yeah. Yeah, that's that's Dalek mania. There was like a bunch of cheap toy lines as well and everything. Just fully cashing in as much as they could. Terry Nation kept trying to make like a spin-off show, but um, never quite managed it. Uh, oh, the Daleks, uh, if you go to the Doctor YouTube channel, there's an animation that they did called, I think it's just called Daleks. Uh, but that is not adapting these comics, but is very clearly heavily inspired by them and does feature the Emperor of the Big Gold Ball Head. Although the design is sadly toned down a little. 
which is a bit of a shame. But that's fun. Um, the animation is a little rough, but that's just because it was made for free for YouTube. But they were still like paying people who were getting like full time jobs. But it sounds really nice, and the voice actors do a good job. And I think the story is pretty fun, so I'd still recommend it. Yeah. With that said, I suppose, is there anything else on the Daleks or should we pivot to next week? Uh, let's just pivot to next week. I think I am, I'm all set. So we're going to be pivoting from something that wasn't created to be sensual, but that is erotic to you, to something that is largely intentionally erotic. We are going to be doing our first sort of anthology type of thing. We're going to be discussing a manga magazine. Uh, This is entitled Pulp. It is Viz Media's long-defunct magazine from the late 90s and early 2000s, which was specifically targeted at adults. So the choices in manga they are bringing over was a bit different than the usual sort of shonen jump that Viz makes all of its money on. So we're going to be reading specifically volume one, number one, the very first issue of Pulp, cover date December 1997. It has five different comics in it, the first chapters of all the series that the magazine began with. And we're going to be talking about the individual comics themselves, as well as just, I suppose, what the experience of reading them in concert as opposed to on their own is like. So, yeah. Chances are that you don't own this and it's not the sort of thing that you could reasonably be expected to find unless you listen to us and go, oh, I do want that. And then buy it afterward. You know, it's the sort of thing you have to result to like eBay is how I got my pulp collection. We're going to be talking about another manga from Ryorichi Gigami, who we already talked about once when we did the Spider-Man manga. So we'll be getting back to him with a very different comic. Will this one, will we actually get to the point where the main character masturbates on panel, or...? There... I'll say there's some sexual content from the jump. Okay, okay. Because I was deeply disappointed that we didn't get to get that far in the Spider-Man manga. Disappointed or actually really relieved? Oh no, genuinely disappointed. Uh, At this point, what could you do or have Spider-Man do that could ruin Spider-Man for for me? There's nothing. Since past One More Day, the entire Nick Spencer run... Nick Spencer's not as... You know what? I was about to try and say something nice about Spencer, but I can't. You were going to try and you went, why would I do that? Um, the concept for his Captain America run, I'd argue, was not inherently bad, but the execution was bad. So, oh, well. High praise. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're going to be... down at the last minute. Yeah. The, Should have pushed it further. Oh, well. The five manga that we're going to be talking about are Strain by the aforementioned Ikigami. There is a humor strip called Heartbroken Angels. A straight sex comedy called Dance Till Tomorrow, Black and White by Tayo Matsumoto, whose art I've always been really into, and then Akimi Yoshida's Banana Fish, which is my favorite comic of all time. So, Going from probably the most me pick to the most you pick. Pretty much. And yeah, I'm sure no one listening to this owns this already, but... If you do, and you feel like rereading it to catch up ahead of the show, 
if you own it, you don't need me to tell you that you're not going to want to read this in public because just having not read it yet, what do you think of this cover? (laughs) This downright emaciatedly looking thin girl in her panties and her top that... I feel like I'm looking down her top. Yeah. And also kind of looking down her panties, which is a very weird thing to be doing. The angle on this drawing is very specific and very intentional. Yeah, yeah, the very me pick of what looks like a straight man's cum-soaked drag. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But and on that note, <laughs> on thank that you note, for listening. <laughs> bye. Press, 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 press